talk with my hands, and this is really limiting for me, so at least I don't have to hold a microphone like I did last time. So, we're, I'm Tim Butler, one of the elders here. Uh, we're in the third week of a four-week series on Philippians, and I'm excited about this. Uh, you're going to hear from me this week and next week. Ben did a fabulous job the last two weeks. It's a great book, and I don't care how many times you've been through the book, it's always good to go through it again, because there's always things that just come at you and resonate with you for the time that you're at. And I love reading it again. It's one of my favorite books. And anytime we preach from a book like this, we always try to strike a balance between going too deep and taking too long and sort of missing the overview or going a little shallow and missing some elements that folks feel are really important. And so we've chosen to cover one chapter each week to sort of arbitrarily done that and realize that the books are inspired, the chapter delineations are not. They're created by man. But just quickly remembering that Paul's in prison, probably in Rome, and he's being punished for his faith, which is interesting. None of us can attribute that to our own lives. But he's not sure of his future. He's not even sure of his life. And yet with his close relationship with the church in Philippi, he writes a very personal letter thanking them for the gift that Epaphroditus had brought to him. And as he writes, he strikes a balance between talking about himself, including the joy that Ben referred to, and giving the church body some instructions and some admonition. And so reviewing chapter 1, he talked about the joy in their gospel faithfulness. And then chapter 2, he shares how his joy would be complete if that church was unified and on mission together. And if you missed either one of those two, you can always grab them from the website. So as we enter chapter 3, it sounds like Paul might be kind of wrapping up the letter. He says, finally, my brethren. But obviously he's not done, because this is only halfway through the book, the, the book. So whether the Holy Spirit inspired him to say these things at sort of the last minute, which is an interesting thought, or whether the Spirit informed him to say these things earlier, we don't know. All we know is that all Scripture is inspired by God, and Paul was inspired by God to write this. So he says in, in verse 1, he says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. And he used a phrase that was both, both a common greeting or a salute, and it was also an admonition. He says, rejoice in the Lord. And the Greek word for rejoice means to thrive or to be glad in. Exceedingly rejoice in the Lord. And since this is the beginning, this is not the beginning of his letter. It's actually quite the opposite. The phrase is probably not meant as a greeting, so therefore it's probably meant as an admonition. Because it sets the tone for this part of his letter. Rejoice in the Lord. She is not rejoicing in the Lord right now. So what, what Paul is about to say is, what they do on the outside is nothing compared with what's going on on the inside, in the heart. Let me say that again, because all of you are distracted, and I appreciate that. We're so Pavlovian, aren't we? Just like, follow the shiny object. What they do on the outside is nothing compared to what is going on the inside, in the heart. So you don't see my heart. You don't see my true motivation. You just see my works. It may be good. I may be able to perform really nicely in front of you. But you don't know my heart. And that's what Paul is getting at. What they do in the natural and the physical is nothing compared with what God does to a man or woman who puts their faith in the saving grace of the cross and is transformed in the inner person. So let's read some verses together. If you have a copy, then 
Grab yours or electronically wire it up. Verses 7 through 14, Philippians 3. But whatever things... But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained it, or I've already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. Yet one thing I do, Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, these are your words. You have written them through the hand of Paul, through the mind of Paul. And we know those words are powerful. God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear what those words mean for us today. Speak to us, God. We love you. In Christ's name, amen. So what Paul is saying, it's it's not legalism anymore, he's saying. With the the old legal requirement of circumcision mentioned earlier in verse 2. But it's the transformation or transforming of the heart. See, circumcision was symbolic for what God really wanted and what the grace of God provided through the Holy Spirit that was given to them after the cross. The heart is the flesh that gets cut. And so our heart is circumcised. Our heart, our devotions, our attractions, our... Yeah, it's kind of hard to wrap your hand around what all that means, but we understand intuitively. But that's what gets cut. That's what gets transformed. In Deuteronomy 10, 16, Moses was speaking to his people. And he said, circumcise then your heart and stiffen your neck no more. And he said that for the purpose of loving God more and serving others with love. He said, circumcise your heart. Cut off the things that you've got a devotion to that aren't really lined up with me. And quit being so hard-headed. See, we can only really live this up-in-and-out life that Ben referred to, up-vertically connected with God, out 
seeking those who may need Jesus and connecting with those that we're in, con- uh, in community with and, and living life with and in, 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 in our sphere of influence and in making sure that we're in a healthy place ourselves supported by a local community as well. We can only do that with a changed heart. We can't just muscle through that. We can't just sort of check it off a list and just do it. I did it. No, no. The heart's got to be changed. Circumcised. In Jeremiah 4, 4, the prophet again declaring the words of the Lord to the men of Judah, said this, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskin of your heart. Interesting use of words there. Men of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. Remove the foreskin of your heart. I want some pieces of your heart. And then later on in the same chapter in verse 14, it says this, Wash your hearts from evil, old Jerusalem, that you may be saved. And then he asks the rhetorical question, How long will your wicked thoughts lodge within you? Again, this is Jeremiah speaking the words of the Lord. How long will your wicked thoughts lodge within you? So God says, change your heart or you're really going to be in trouble. Since the creation of man, God has been after our hearts or our our devotions, our desires, right? We've known in Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, O God. Create in me a clean heart. And renew a loyal or steadfast spirit with me, within me. So what are our wicked thoughts that lodge within us? You're thinking, yeah, I don't have any wicked thoughts. I'm a pretty good guy. But today there's a lot more competition for our hearts. And it was interesting that I was not in jail when I penned these words, but I was captivated because I was in the hospital. And I was in the room by myself, and I don't do TV, so the TV wasn't on. It was just me and the drip in the window. Now, the drip was nice. It kind of took off some of the edge of the surgery, but I was coherent. I wasn't like out of myself, but there was a drip. And it was peaceful. And, but I was no distractions. Just the lunch that my daughter brought me from Chipotle, because the hospital food's different. But it was, uh, it was peaceful there. And I was undistracted. Now, obviously, it wasn't reality. I'm sitting in a hospital room. This is not reality. I'm looking out this bucolic window over some nice trees and the green grass, watching life go on beyond. And I'm just sitting there just peaceful. It was really a peaceful time, mostly because of the drip. But it was... Uh, it was, it was undistracted. And I thought as I was in there that Paul was having no distractions because he was in chains. He was in prison. I, at the moment, was undistracted because I had no cares. I didn't do a thing. I just sat there. And so there's a lot of things I was pondering in there that are competition for our hearts. And, and not bad things. Not bad things. But things that redirect our hearts or at the very least, can become, at the very most, maybe can be an idol to us. Good stuff, like families, or our kids, or success in our jobs. Um, money, toys, adult toys, business of life can grab our hearts. Um, gathering and increasing knowledge can grab our hearts. They can all be good things. But are they doing something in us that's counter to what God wants to do in us. Let me, let me give you an example. Um, I saw a patient this week. Um, I'm a therapist, for those who don't know me. Um, 
And she was a godly woman. I know her well. I know her husband well. We've got a great marriage. You have two uh, preteen and teen adolescent uh, girls. Uh, godly family, solid, mature, um, brilliant. But she was abused and as, a, as a preteen and teen. And so her kids now cannot do a thing without texting her before, during, and after any event where they're not with her. The obvious, right? She's gone through a tough time. She's wanting to make sure that she keeps her kids from going through the tough time, and it's totally understandable. But it's also not healthy. Because during those moments when her kids are out of her care, and they're texting her before, during, and after, who's in control? She is. And so we talked about this. And what kind of brought it up was one time when um, her kid forgot to text her. She sent her husband by to drive by the ball field to make sure that everything was okay because the, the peer's dad was taking them that day to soccer or whatever. And, of course, that was all kinds of triggers. And so the more we talked about this, the more she realized that that texting had become a bit of an idol to her. She brought it up, I didn't. She had an unhealthy devotion to, at the very least, right, wanting the reassurance of, just send me a text, tell me you're okay, I just need to know. But it actually became an obsession, and it became an idol. And God was sidelined for that time, for that person, and she got it. Now, she'll have to go through the changes, and she'll have to, you know, adjust that. But those were good things, but she had to have sort of some clipping, if you will, of her heart, because her heart was inclined to do that. And her heart was inclined to go in that direction, but yet it really wasn't a godly direction. And so the subtlety is when is our heart needing to be circumcised? Because it's really a good thing, but it's not really a good thing. Because it tends to take away from our devotion to God. And so I just kind of use that as an example uh, of things that can maybe come in front of an intimate and productive relationship with God. And then, of course, that's that's what becomes a problem. So we're not going to find the real meaning of life or abundant life in Jesus, as we read in John, until God gets a hold of our hearts, until God transforms our hearts. And depending on where you are in your spiritual journey, that may seem a little odd to you. But nothing changes until God gets a hold of our hearts. So what does that look like? It's when we realize that all flesh or old man or works we can do amount to nothing in God's economy. It's only what Jesus did on the cross for me that I can be righteous or what God wants me to be and have true life. And that's what Paul was trying to convey to the church in this section of the letter. So rereading a few of those verses, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. I want to know Christ Jesus. I want to know. I want to really know who Jesus is. But I won't really know who Jesus is if I always have my daughters text me before, during, and after they're away from my presence, right? Because then that's kind of me doing that. And going on, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to know him, rejoice in the Lord, know him, rejoice in him, know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings. And he says later on, forgetting what lies behind, and reaching forward to what lies ahead. 
He wanted to forget what he had attained or accomplished, but not where he had been. Because he gives him a, a resume, he reads his resume. Right? He said, I was the Jew among Jews. I was a Hebrew among Hebrews. I was a Pharisee among Pharisees. I was circumcised. I was circumcised. I was a zealot for the Lord. Yahweh, Jehovah, Lord. He was dragging folks into prison for belonging to the way, Christians of that time. He was pure in heart, but he didn't have full knowledge. He was following in the rich traditions handed down to him, and he was passionate about his beliefs, but he had never encountered the Lord Jesus, the living Lord. And all those things, things seemed like the right things to do at the time, but they were all religious efforts. Religion did not save him. It doesn't save us. Until he got to smack down by God on the road to Damascus, he didn't know the road to travel. Maybe you remember the story. He's going to Damascus with the authority from the high priest to seek any who are following Christ's teaching and bring them back to Jerusalem to be prosecuted, right? And at that time, he went by his Jewish name of Saul. Later, he would use his other name given to him at birth of Paul, which was his Roman name or his Gentile name, so he could connect with the Gentile culture. So you know the road, the story. The bright light came down. It blinded him. It was a voice from heaven. Saul, Saul, you're persecuting me. I'm Jesus who you're persecuting. Then he said, then the voice, God, Jesus, rise and enter the city, Damascus, and it'll be told you what you must do. That was in Acts 9. So then he stayed blind for three days. You remember the story. And, and God orchestrated a meeting between Saul and a disciple of Christ named Ananias. And Ananias was freaked out uh, at, the, at the instruction he got in his dream because he knew of Paul's reputation. He knew Paul's history. He knew his past. See, Paul's conversion experience, which Ananias didn't know of yet, was life-changing, as they're supposed to be. Paul was not exchanging one religion for another. See, in our chapter, he's not teaching the church in Philippi to practice new religious traditions. He's getting them to know the importance of knowing Jesus. Which, if you think about it, is the essence of the gospel. To know Jesus. So then in verse 9, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. To know him is to love him. And that's the heart devotion. To know him is to love him. My only connection to pop culture there is a Bobby Benton song from 1968. To know, know, know you is to love, love, love you. Most of you don't know that one, but that's okay. I won't sing it. But the church in Philippi was clinging to old ways of thinking. And some of their own false teachers, or dogs, as Paul called them in this chapter, were telling them the cross was not enough. So Paul said they could not do anything that was worth anything compared to what Christ did. I counted all loss, rubbish, dung. It's an interesting Greek word. I won't go into that one. Verse 8 says, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. I mean, it's just getting stripped away, isn't it? Think about that. We're so wrapped up with life, and we've got legitimate stuff going on, real stuff going on. We love our kids. We love our spouse, and we're doing good stuff. It's so easy to be subtly drawn away that we suddenly don't really have a passion for the Lord because we have so many distractions 
And it, 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 it struck me as I sat in that hospital room with nothing to distract me. It's like, this is really easy to be to- totally devoted to God because I got nothing else going on and I can't go anywhere. But it's not real life. So in real life, what do we do to keep ourselves in that place? So let me read you a paraphrase of the same verses I read a few moments ago by an old school commentator, Harry Einside, who was in the early 1900s. It's a little thick, so I'll go slow. Ever since he's reading paraphrase of the words of Paul, ever since I saw Christ and the glory of God, I've considered nothing else as worth living for. For he has so won my heart that nothing now counts with me but the blessedness of knowing him of being completely identified with him, both in life and in death, yes, and beyond death. I would not stand before God in a righteousness of my own if I could. I desire only to be found in him. I long only to know him more intimately, Let the suffering involved be what it may. I would even die as he died at last, if need be, any way that he may choose. That at last, whatever may lead me to it, I shall attain to the greater rapture of all saints at his coming. The glorious out-resurrection from among the dead. This for me will be the goal attained which has been so long before my soul. For then I shall be completely identified with him who has won my heart to himself. That I shall be like him forever and with him through all ages to come. That, friends, is true circumcision circumcision of the heart. Knowing fully whom I love whom I serve, who died for me, who gave his life for me, and yet I still coexist in this world. And the cares of the world are around me, but do they wrap around me? Or am I able to separate them for devotion to God? So here's sort of the application part. What is winning our hearts? What is winning our hearts? What is worth living for? What is worth losing everything for? What is worth dying for? We need something to live for. We need something to die for. Like Paul said in verse 12, I've not already obtained it. I'm not perfect. But I press on. I, Tim Butler, am definitely in process. My heart still needs to complete the circumcision process. But that needs to be our goal. To lay hold of that to which I was laid hold of in Christ. I like what the New Living Translation says in that same verse. But I keep working towards the day when I will finally be all that Christ Jesus saved me for and wants me to be. If that's my goal, to be all that Jesus Christ saved me for and wants me to be, that I need to stay really dialed in and really in tune with, God, what are you saying to me now? Now, now. 
What things are wrapping around my heart? Maybe good things, maybe bad things. I mean, obviously, that's, that's a no-brainer. What things are wrapping around my heart that are really getting in the way of my devotion to you? See, I know there's going to be some theological disagreements on this next point. So I'll just caveat that and say that right up front. But my, my conviction is this. God changes my heart. I change my lifestyle. God changes my heart. He did that on the cross, supernaturally. Holy Spirit invasion. I change my lifestyle. I see where my hands and feet go. I see where my mind goes. I've shared this story before. But it bears repeating, I believe. Most of you know I lost a daughter. We lost a daughter. In 2002. And I was in the hospital. Agonizing day and night. God save my daughter. God heal my daughter. As any parent would. You know, consumed with that. As any parent would. And I audibly heard in my spirit. One night. God said, I know what you want. Now worship me. And I went to the window of the Ann Arbor Hospital. And looked out into the night sky. And saw the canopy of stars. And I began to worship God. See, the work in my heart that allowed me to worship Him during that tremendously terrible time can only be attributed to the work of the Holy Spirit in me. But the decision to let my mind and my lips go towards worship at that moment was what I did. I responded to that call. And so there's always that tension going on inside of us. The work of God. And my changing my lifestyle. So let me close by tying together two verses from Philippians. One was from Philippians in the first chapter, which Ben covered, Philippians 127. Only conduct yourselves, or that word conduct means uh, citizen yourselves, um, exercise your citizenship. Conduct yourself, citizen yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. I want you to be on earth with a citizenship that says you look like you're in heaven. And then Philippians 3.20 in our chapter, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we live this week, let our heart that knows Jesus and our life that follows Jesus combine together to better live the gospel to our families, to our neighbors, Right? We're citizens of heaven with a Bowling Green mailing address. Or Pemberville, wherever you're from. For the purpose of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. So it's, it's, it's beautiful. This book is beautiful because it's so simple. He boils it down so well. And it's so easy to sort of see what that can mean for us. So where is your heart? What has got your heart? And is that something that you allow to motivate you, your devotion, where it comes out naturally because you just love your child, it comes out naturally that you show love for your child. Do I love my Lord? And it shows naturally that I just love my Lord. And do others know that? Do they see Jesus in me? Why doesn't the worship band come up? Why don't we stand up and then I'll pray. Father God, thank you so much 
for the words that you gave Paul for that church, for that time. And God, I pray that you would allow us to see how those words for that church, for that time, apply to us today. And God, just continue to burn in our hearts our desire for you and our passion for you. God, we love you. And we thank you for the work that you've done in our lives and allowing us to do that. In Christ's name, amen.